to critically evaluate the last 20 years of The Cure, your approach has to change. Because after Blood Flowers, The Cure ceased to be a present tense band, a band that's contending with popular music, you know, taking up press cycles, going into heavy rotation on radio, and the soon-to-be-irrelevant MTV. That reality was not clear until after Blood Flowers. Wild Moon Swings is a flop, but it's still seen maybe as a hiccup by the music industry because there's a lot of reasonable excuses for its failure. It's a poorly timed album, it's coming too long on the heels of Wish, and stylistically it's just completely out of step with the prevailing mid-90s trends, which are Britpop and grunge. With Blood Flowers, there's still the sense that The Cure might be capable of a comeback, and the fans are going to show up for The Cure. Maybe it's going to be a return to Wish or even Disintegration. In 99-2000, Robert's out in the press and he's absolutely saying as much. This is the conclusion of a trilogy of classic records and just as good as pornography and disintegration. So in that way, The Cure is still competing, like any other rock band in the run-up to Blood Flowers. But the popular indifference to that record, that settles the argument as to whether or not The Cure will ever be a commercial force in the music industry again. Added to which time presses on. The band get older, lives get more complicated, and so everything just takes longer. Robert Smith's never really cared what anyone else thinks. I mean, at least he's always been eager to leave that impression. But entering his 40s, he's set for life, and he doesn't feel compelled to do anything. Certainly not on anyone else's terms. He's not getting out of bed if it doesn't suit him. He doesn't care how long the cure go between albums or if he even cares to make another one. But it's about more than that, more than his status, the comfort of his life or his age. He's been struggling with writer's block ever since Wish, and it keeps getting worse. I can't find myself. I can't find myself. If you include compilations and live albums, The Cure released 12 records between 1980 and 1990. And while the 90s skew heavily toward comps and the show in Paris live albums, there's still another 10 or 11 commercial, heavily promoted Cure releases, believe it or not, between Entreat in 91 and let's make it the 2001 Greatest Hits with the acoustic hits on the second disc. After that, there are four releases in the entire 2000s, including the Join the Dots box set in 2004 and the 2005 festival DVD. There is not a single note of new Cure music released in the entirety of the 2010s. You say goodbye, and I say hello. Musically speaking, there's literally not a lot to talk about over the last 20 years of The Cure, but I'll give it a shot. (laughs) There are three threads that sort of principally define the 2000s for The Cure. First, Robert finally and completely breaks with Chris Perry and Fiction Records, which is Polydor. He becomes a free agent for the first time in the history of The Cure. From 1976 to 2002, Robert Smith has been dealing with essentially the same management and representation, and now he can negotiate a new situation completely on his own terms. It's not great timing, because the music industry is staring down Napster, file sharing, and the collapse of physical media sales, but despite the disappointing sales, Bloodflowers is an artistic success. The trilogy con- 
concerts on the back of it are very well received. And in 2003, Smith is pretty well reinvigorated and he's starting to evaluate how he's going to bring The Cure up to date. The Cure is decidedly not over after Bloodflowers. Robert wants to do more. He has more to say. He thinks. He's heard The Cure's influence on all those new metal bands in the late 90s. He's particularly fond of Korn. So he reaches out to their producer, Ross Robinson, checks out his work on At The Drive-In's Relationship of Command and this English band Vex Red that really never did anything in the States. He sets up a meeting and after this conversation, Robert decides to go with him as the producer of the first Cure album, not on Fiction Records. And it's easy to see why, because the linchpin of Robinson's sound comes from his teenage obsessions with The Cure, with New Order and Susie and the Banshees. Ross updates the sort of liquid bass sound, we used to call it, that Peter Hook Robert, Simon, Steve Severin, and others carried those bands with. Robinson comes up with a twist on that sound. He starts applying compression, limiters, exciters. He applies it to heavy metal, and it leads to this explosion of imitators and the entire new metal genre with which Ross Robinson will be forever twinned. For the next five years, everyone's playing drop C on a seven-string bass. I mean, like, whatever you think of this guy, whatever gossip you buy into, if you think Korn's too mainstream or melodramatic, you can't dispute the originality of those records. So the second thread here is that Robert's in his early 40s. He's reached the age where he sort of knows what he doesn't know. What he knows to a certainty is that the last two Cure records, on which he was more controlling than any in the past, they weren't commercially successful. So however proud he was of Bloodflowers, he knows it was essentially a dud. With the wisdom that he lacked in the 1990s, he recognizes that he doesn't know how to make the Cure relevant anymore. And so he takes the decision to let someone else try their hand at it. For his part, Ross Robinson is at the peak of his fame, his extroversion, and his egomania. The money's come pouring in on the back of Slipknot and Korn. It's the heyday of producers getting stupid huge percentage points on records. You know, while he's viewed as a pugnacious loudmouth who takes way too much credit for the success of the records he works on, in a money talks bullshit walks way, Ross is in a position of enormous power in the music industry when he sets out to work with The Cure. And the sessions for this record, for The Cure's self-titled 2004 album, they're legendary and for all the wrong reasons. And a lot of that is down to Roger O'Donnell, who was having none of Ross Robinson's button-pushing bullshit. He threatened to walk out pretty much on a daily basis. Roger's a fascinating element of the cure because he's the only one that will like tell tales out of school and Robert will still let him back into the fold. I mean, Rogers talks shit on Wish. He talks shit on the current lineup that's touring. He just, he doesn't have a great filter still, even with his age and maturity. He will absolutely fucking pop off on Twitter about whatever. But the situation with Ross Robinson is so extreme that it's beyond just Roger being unhappy. Robert, in interviews around it, tells the story that Ross screams in his face you're Robert fucking Smith make me cry you know and that he's smashing up the studio throwing symbols across the room telling the cure their shit this isn't the cure you fucking pussies like it's so beneath Roger especially there was no coming back from this I mean it's not really a shock that Robert kind of blanked Roger after this record when he blew up the band in 2005 and like I'm sure Simon wanted to chin Robinson
Jackson at various points, too. The whole band is sitting there looking at Robert like, what the fuck did you sign us up for? This is fucking ridiculous. And, like, we have to endure it. We have to submit to this because you're submitting to it. It's like being held hostage. I've toured the world for you. I've put up with so much bullshit. I've been hired and fired watching you throw up on my shoes at the side of the stage. You know, always at the king's leisure. And now I gotta be put through my paces by some fucking jacked up Venice Beach asshole throwing tantrums every 15 minutes? It's further evidence of Robert's stubborn streak that he let this go on and refused to kind of shut Robinson down, tell him like, look, we don't work this way. You need to cool it. It's not 1982 and I'm not 23. To his credit, Robinson has since come out in interviews and said, look, I really took things too far with The Cure. I think he would be upfront about the fact that he was probably in his worst phase of kind of blind ambition and overconfidence. And you pair that with Smith being somewhat rudderless, it's not a foundation for a healthy or fruitful collaboration. So the self-titled ends up a really shallow, performative kind of pantomime. It's Ross Robinson wanting to resurrect the ghost of Robert Smith. It's like dating someone because you think you can fix them. It's Stephen King's misery, really, is what it is. It's a situation where Robert's agreed to work with one of his biggest fans who just happens to have become one of the most successful and famous rock producers in the world. Like, how do you think that's gonna go? It's such a twisted, fucked up scenario. Like, it's not normal. Despite the fact that these are well-established adults working in the same field, Ross Robinson completely fails to do his job. The job of a producer. And so everyone just drowns under the weight of his fantasy of being part of The Cure's history. Like Smith said in interviews, Robinson wasn't happy with the final running order of this album. Right there. What the fuck does Ross Robinson have designs on the sequencing of a Cure album for? He's the producer. He's helping construct the record, make it sound a certain way, you know, update the Cure sound for a new generation of potential fans. He should hold the skeleton key to that, but that's not what the self-titled becomes. It's Ross Robinson trying to beat a 43-year-old rock star into being 23 again. The album itself is a really obvious survey of recycled, you know, capital C Cure songs. Like Lost Is All Mine, Stroke Forever, you know, the old encore jam they used to do in the pornography and top tours. Labyrinth Is Burn, which, you know, that in itself was a commercial update of the title track of pornography. But I should call out, Labyrinth is probably the best song on this record. Certainly in terms of the music, they just should have worked harder on it. Because just like Wild Mood Swings before this, and definitely 413 Dream After, it's just a looping four chord progression. It's got no depth, no dynamics. I mean, this is something I've harped on about for years. Barring the best tracks on Blood Flowers, there are no guitar leads in any Cure songs since Wish. It's stupefying. Like, where the fuck did that go? It's only the fucking trademark sound of this band. Yet everything in the modern Cure era is just chugging four chord ditties or loping four chord dirges. The verses are a means to an end to get to a chorus that half the time, it's pretty mediocre. Like, great example of this, Before Three. Four notes for five minutes, detached, flat lyrics, full of this middling dreaminess that, you know, we've been stuck with since the 90s. And like worse, there's this putrid, oafish curse that is so out of place, like so fucked and high. I don't know if I'd have been throwing the word fucked around considering how well things were going in Cure World at this point. <laughs>
anniversary and us or them in the middle that's maybe the two worst songs on this record for me and for different reasons it's so hard to call a bottom on this record though i mean like alt end is the riff from in your house with jason cooper's new overplaying drum style rushing everywhere but anniversary is like it's just not even a song it's just a bunch of a musical whooshing it's a droning two-note bass line it's just such a disorganized mess and i mean you talk about zero effort lyrics i hold you and i kiss you and i never let you go i mean that's as phoned in as it gets with robert smith he's functionally rereading the lyrics from cut here same goes for the promise i mean maybe that's the worst thing on here because it literally falls apart like three times i don't even know what that song is it is interminable 10 structureless minutes of like creaking unmelodic groaning it's that thing that starts happening on all of the cure records once jason cooper's in the band never happened before the cure start jamming historically this band is one of the most compact perfect three-minute pop song bands of all time even the seven-minute songs they're just drawn out dolorous but really compact tightly structured pop songs listen to disintegration the title track from disintegration it's over seven minutes long there are two drum fills in the entire song two And now you've got frantic drum fills rushing all over the track, flying around every two measures, and that's what The Cure becomes with Cooper. It's just not the same band. But if you do like a word cloud of The Cure, especially of the self-titled and 413, I mean anything after Wish, every other word is I, you, can't, don't, want. Like the word no, you know, like as in knowledge. That word no comes up all the time. The Cure becomes such a thematically repetitive, boring band on record. There's just no emotional or literary stakes to anything on these two 2000s records. It is an exercise in satisfying Ross Robinson and by extension, believing that they're going to satisfy the Cure's audience. But it brutally underestimates both the sophistication and the dedication of the Cure's fan base. You know, in aid of finding a positive thread here, I do like The End of the World. I think it's a really solid single. The chorus has a really nice melodic elevation to it. There's an urgent tempo. Like, that song moves. It swings. It's a decent update of the Cure sound. I don't know what's going on. That's not bad either. Uh, Much stronger musically than lyrically. Sounds like it could be a leftover even from as far back as Head on the Door. Taking Off, that's like later Cure. That's like a Wish Out take maybe or the couple of good rock songs on Wild Mood Swings. Maybe a better comparison would be the two like psychedelic B-sides from Fascination Street, Babel and Out of Mind. Like, but Smith didn't give a shit about Taking Off. They only played it like once or twice ever. And that was only on the tour in support of this album. Speaking of B-sides, the 2004 ST generates the same fan outrage as every Cure album since Wish, really even including Wish. The final track list, particularly in North America, is missing songs that are far stronger that were either left off entirely or consigned to flip sides. I mean, some of them are for obvious reasons. Like, Why Can't I Be Me? That's just way too obvious. That's major metatextual, like, navel-gazing. It's a song about writer's block and the notion of, like, having a public persona and people having expectations of you. You can see why Smith was like this is a little on the nose and the 
secure a B-side band. So indulgent things like that, like Why Can't I Be Me, they make more sense as flip sides. Fans will let The Cure go anywhere on a B-side. I mean, apart from a couple songs on Blood Flowers, I've listened to Throw Your Foot more times than anything The Cure have released since Wish. It's the throwback anthems that you're missing here. This Morning and Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. I don't think you'll find a seasoned Cure fan that doesn't consider these two songs stronger than anything else on the self-titled. And for Rest of World, for the vinyl edition, the album's better for including them. The most obvious loss for Americans is the exclusion of Going Nowhere, which closes the record for Rest of World. And like, without question, it's not even a discussion. This is the best thing the Cure recorded with Ross Robinson. Going Nowhere is still middle-of-the-road cure. And the fact that the self-titled could benefit so much from that being on the record, that just shows you what a composite failure it is. If you take 2004 as a whole, it's essentially Robert Smith's Geffen experiment. And it was very public, fueled by tons of publicity he agreed to do for the record. But ultimately, it was a flop. Everyone at Geffen Records grew up with The Cure. This company was all hands on deck, 100% committed to doing everything they could to impress Robert Smith and sign him. Like, Robert, this is what we can do for you. Your last two albums have done that well let us show you how we can break you to this american audience of kids that are buying tens of millions of lincoln park and corn records buying music that's so clearly influenced by your work Geffen was not a bad bet. I think Smith made the smartest decisions he could have at that time, both in working with Ross Robinson and signing with Geffen. The ST would have done worse anywhere else. Like, its reception and prospects under Geffen, that's as good as any label could have done with that album. And, like, if I put on my business cap, Geffen didn't sign them for this album or because they thought they were going to sell 20 million records. They signed them because they were one of the biggest live draws on the planet. It's estimated that over the life of the band, The Cure have generated almost $200 million in ticket sales. They print money on the road and they can anchor any festival anywhere on earth by the 2000s everything is about the Coachella poster these enormous mega festivals because you need to aggregate the attraction festival culture is a conservative evolution of the music business dying because one band can't sell 50,000 tickets anymore Taylor Swift can do it Adele can do it U2 can do it the Foo Fighters can do it but you can count acts of that stature on two hands and The Cure are one of them added to which there's no 10,000 seat venues left for bands that might be down the bill on Coachella to do their own headlining tour you pretty much have like a 1500 to 3000 seat fancy amphitheater in your city three shitty clubs and then out in the burbs the sheds and that's where you make real money and the cure have been selling out sheds since the mid 80s i mean the cure didn't exactly crush it at coachella the encore though went down really well and i think that's almost anyone remembered crowd goes nuts you can hear it
right after Coachella ends, The Cure announced the Curiosa Festival. So you'd think Coachella suggests this is going to be a great summer for big concert tours, right? We got Lollapalooza on the schedule in June, right? Another chance to see the reunited Pixies. We also got Sonic Youth, Morrissey, and the then very popular concert draw, The Flaming Lips. Well, it's canceled with almost no notice. Like, they shit-canned the whole thing. Repeatedly, this is due to poor ticket sales. But, you know, that's also something The Cure are accustomed to. Going back to the swing tour, being overbooked, playing half-sold shows. They're not scared off by it. So the Curiosa Festival goes forward. But the majority of these dates are half-sold. It doesn't help that there was an historic heat wave on, especially in the East Coast. Like, going to Randall's Island to see The Cure when it's 102 degrees out, I'll get you on the next tour, guys. On paper, it was a really strong lineup. Again, you got Thursday, by far the best like stadium-quality show you're going to get out of any of these bands. Interpol, Muse, Mogwai, The Rapture, like tons of hip acts with strong profiles in 2004 that are all clearly influenced by The Cure. But like The Rapture and Interpol, they really weren't ready to play Sheds. And Mogwai, one of the biggest legacy touring acts going. But in 2004, their profile was pretty small, and they were often playing in the daylight. Like they're doing Rats of the Capital at 3 in the afternoon, and this tour was was not cheap it was totally extravagant they had a separate bar bus like a bar car and a train it was an entire tour bus that was just for drinks after the show but hey who's on trial it took a lifespan with no With all these bands, with new metal, emo, post-post-punk, new new wave, whatever, all that stuff blowing up in the early 2000s, The Cure's an influence on all of it. And now it's like in an open public way, which was never so transparent because, again, The Cure used to be a band you might be competing with. Now you've got an entire generation that is in so many ways bowing down to The Cure in real time while The Cure are playing out. And so he's hugely in demand. He starts doing guest appearances everywhere. Junkie XL, Blank and Jones, eventually does something with Billy Corgan, and he co-writes the song All of This with Blank 182 because they're label mates at this point. All of this sounds to me like a Sunny Day Real Estate B-side. Like, this is Blink trying to get some artistic credibility. They want to be taken seriously, right? Prove they're not just the soundtrack to Jackass. You got DeLonge doing his big San Diego emo song, Violence, which I actually love that song. But the point is, you're hearing The Cure as an influence everywhere. And this sort of resolves itself in an MTV special following the release of the 2004 Geffen self-titled. On Halloween night from London, MTV broadcasts this star-studded tribute to The Cure. It's emceed by Marilyn Manson. And it features performances from AFI, Blink-182, Razorlight, Deftones. This special's really uneven. Like, Marilyn Manson is super fucked up and slurring his words all over the place. The whole idea of it is so awkward because you're watching The Cure sitting in the audience with cameras trained on them, watching bands do their songs. And most of them really aren't doing them justice. Like, AFI's Just Like Heaven is so sheepish and deferential and straight. And you can see Robert, he is so stone-faced during their performance. It's really painful. You get the sense that he regards Davey Havoc as like a horse-maned ponce. And then you have Blink-182 doing Letter to Elise, which is just a fucking train wreck. Hot 
Pappas isn't a great live singer on his best day, and MTV Icon was not his best day. You got Travis Barker doing his overplaying nonstop Phil shit. It's just sloppy and way out of Blink's wheelhouse. There's a funny mirror of it too, from the same year, in terms of like a good cover of Letter to Elise. This band Sensefield, they were one time Revelation Records, like, you know, almost hardcore act. They were way too poppy. Their cover's more straight than Blink's. It kind of sounds like a watered down Thursday, but it works. By far the biggest and most artistically credible band that were so openly influenced by The Cure and touting that influence was Deftones. And when the MTV Icon special happens, they're coming out with their definitive self-titled album with the skull on the cover, anchored by one of the greatest hard rock wall of sound anthems ever in Minerva. That song is as influenced by My Bloody Valentine and Shoegaze as The Cure, of course, but it's like 50-50 because The Cure itself is an influence on Shoegaze, right? And so much of that change that Deftones make in the late 90s, going from being kind of like a bratty mall rat, 360 deal industry project, signed to Maverick, you know, Madonna's label, the change they make on White Pony, that's totally driven by looking at Robert Smith's trajectory, like as an icon and an iconoclast who wrote his own ticket. It's just the same way Bowie was that defiant inspiration for Smith. Smith now that same figure for Chino Marino and like the rest of the band and that's the example they use to pressure the label like let us do our own thing we don't want to be fucking Limp Biscuit. we want to be the cure and trust us that's going to be better for you long term in terms of catalog sales and like kids all over the country all over the world they completely recognize themselves in Deftones after this point they are embraced and identified with in a way that like totally takes them to a different level and separates them from the more sort of pedestrian uh, mainstream new metal stuff Their MTV icon performance of If Only Tonight We Could Sleep, full stop, this is one of the best covers of all time. I mean, it's night and day. You compare like AFI's Just Like Heaven. AFI is like a high school cover band doing the romantics What I Like About You. It's like a bunch of dorks doing a songbook standard. Deftones, if only tonight, it's not only technically reconstituting the original article, it infuses it at the same time with Deftones and with Chino's personalities. They inhabit that song in that moment as themselves, as kids who felt the cure so deeply and like not just a bunch of posing goth marionettes.
terms of Cure covers over the life of the band as a topic, it's this. It's the Cowboy Junkie 17 Seconds. That is so overlooked by lots of fans. And Dinosaur Jr. is just like heaven. Like, these are the only instances to me of bands doing anything to kind of respectfully resurface or pay tribute to a Cure song and add anything to it. But like, hold up, I'll be honest. I think 311's love song is fucking legit. I will always love you. Like, sure, they're an embarrassingly silly, superficial band. They were playing shitty tween pop during, like, the worst period in pop music history. It's like the fucking L.A. Looks, Day Glow, Hair Gel years. But genre mashups, their turn on Love Song, when you do that right, it's a smart play. And Love Song itself is a ditty to begin with. Look, The Cure hated Love Song. Robert Smith and the entire band hated that song. They fought against releasing it as a single from Disintegration. So, like, why not a Gone Tropo version? Fuck it. The end of the world is really all that endures in terms of anyone's memory of the first half of the 2000s. I mean, it did well enough initially. The Cure ended up on late night talk shows playing it. They did pull some new fans, and that is in enormous contrast with 413 Dream four years later. This is an album that died on its ass so bad, it dropped out of the UK charts two weeks after it was released. And you know, if you take Smith on his actions rather than what he says in the press, he clearly considered the Geffen Year a one-off, because they've never played any of the self-titled songs live since, and immediately after Curiosa raps, he blows the whole band up and decides he wants to go back to being a power trio. It was totally unrealistic and it doesn't work live, so he reverses himself immediately and brings Pearl Thompson back into the band. This four-piece lineup is the back half of the 2000s. They debut at Live 8 in 2005, and for a lot of fans, this was a pretty controversial show in the sense that The Cure would have even played it because it is a socio-political Bob Geldof deal in support of Make Poverty History. It's also time to antagonize the G8 Summit, Robert starts saying some pretty overtly political things in interviews. Like, he's also putting slogan stickers on the guitar. Look, he'd always been willing to talk shit on the royal family. He was a loud English Republican. But, like, in 05, he's tentatively waving some world politics flags. And, like, no one is up for this. That's Bono territory, man. Fuck that. The Live Aid performance itself, it's okay. I mean, it's literally the debut of the Pearl, Simon, Jason, Robert lineup. Tempo-wise, it's sort of all over the place. But the highlight, unquestionably, is the performance of 100 Years, which, from one Vantage is Smith's most political song. I was shocked at how powerfully he was able to rip the end of this at this show. I mean, you can hear it. He is totally in the moment going for it.
This lineup is pretty strong. It's looser, and because of that, Smith is happier. So he's more committed. He intentionally wants to go back to this, to being a more raw live act. And he's got Pearl, who's by far the best live guitarist The Cure have ever had to this point. They really took their time getting the show right, because after the 05 festivals, they just play one concert in 2006, a benefit for the Children's Trust. They take the entire year off to either rest, recuperate, write, get inspired, whatever. And they stage an enormous world tour for 2007. The first leg of this tour has really diverse set lists, and in general, it gets strong notices. It's kind of forgotten over the years. I rate this easily as the best and most exciting live configuration the band had in the 2000s, the whole decade. But like Smith bit off way more than he could chew. They end up pausing the tour halfway through and pushing the second leg out to 2008. This is kind of like Smith's midlife crisis. Like instead of buying a McLaren F1, he decides the Cure are going to go back in time. They're going to go play the Hope and Anchor in London again, you know? Like he wants it to be more hectic and more compact, but like he's inviting mistakes by asking a four piece to carry these three hour shows. The second leg of the tour is markedly worse. His voice starts to go and it contributes to a pretty negative general impression of the band of this period. Like from 08 until Smith invites Reeves Gabrels to join the Cure, the live show takes a big hit. The 2011 Bestival performance, listen to Disintegration off that. It is fucking rough. Even if they weren't consistently killing it live, the four-piece lineup does establish its own identity, its own vibe. And like any phase in The Cure's history, Smith wants to document it, so they're gonna do a studio album, and this becomes 413 Dream. Today, 413 Dream is all but universally regarded as The Cure's worst record. It's the bottom rung from which any other Cure album is to be judged. Like, even Wild Mood Swings becomes, it's bad, but it's not 413 Dream bad. <laughs> and, like, a lot of that is because Smith is misleading fans about what 413 Dream will be, what it will sound like. It's the heaviest, darkest record we've ever done. We recorded 50 songs. We have enough for five albums. If you like The Cure, you'll love it. You know, all that crap. But unlike the self-titled, it's also staged as Smith's sort of long-coming response to post-rock, to bands like Sugar Ross, Mogwai, Explosions in the Sky, bands that Robert explicitly kind of twinned the cure with, like 65 Days of Static, and the one that has essentially been tied to them for a decade now, The Twilight Sad. Just like with Shoegaze and Wish, all these bands lifted Robert's sound. The chorus, bass six, they all rent that from Smith, and they exist in his shadow. But post-rock is an art school genre. It's student music. It's a sound Smith enjoys. It's like ambient music for guitar rock fans, but this is not a genre The Cure should have been trafficking in. The, the sort of like anthemic crescendo-filled structural sameness of post-rock on one level, it's unambitious. It's anonymous music in so many respects, and that's antithetical to Robert Smith and The Cure. And it's the reason behind the incongruity of 413 Dreams' relatively beautiful opener, Underneath the Stars.
This is the best song on the album by, by a laughable margin, but it sounds like nothing else on it. The record dives headlong into an endless slog of those trite, repetitive four-chord ditties. It's This album is going through the motions defined, and it was a crushing letdown on the back of Underneath the Stars. Like, that's the sound we'd been promised. Here it is. There's classic Cure Sonics guitar melodies kind of culled from across the discography, which, of course, you know, Smith is entitled to pull from. But he goes on, like, this kind of wailing tear with the vocals, and the effects are ridiculous on the vocals. They're just so overdone, the delay, the panning, and he's mixed so loud. I mean, in so many respects, The Cure have always been about Smith's vocals. They've always been front and center in the mix, but it starts to get really silly, starting with Wild Mood Swings, and, like, by the time of 413 Dream, it's out of fucking control how loud his voice is. The lyrics are kind of an improvement, I mean, across the whole record, over the self-titled, but it's detached in that modern Cure way still. It's, like, too prosaically, I don't know, eternal. Like, when I think of Underneath the Stars, I think of, like, those night sky lamps that you, you can buy from trinket catalogs. You know, you shine the Milky Way up on your ceiling in black light. It's like live, love, laugh, astral mysticism or something. It's so melodramatic. I mean, The Cure have always been melodramatic, but there's this different melodrama and sort of distance to modern Cure, as I keep calling it, that, like, especially older Gen X fans like me, we're usually not particularly fond of it. You can't deny how fucking repetitive 413 Dream is. It is so thin on ideas. The only thing you can say for it is you can tell, like you can feel that Pearl is back, which is a huge upgrade in terms of the energy level. And vocally, you can hear Robert's more comfortable, obviously, than he was working with Ross Robinson. So with Pearl throwing ideas around, there's some throwback stuff here. There's riffs that they've said may have been dating from as long ago as Head on the Door. You know, the only one, that's the closest thing they have to a single. It's a good upbeat jaunt in the vein of like High or I guess Mint Car. The problem with that one for me, and I suspect a lot of fans, is that the lyrics are a little more like erotic uh, and explicit than I want to be hearing from an almost 50-year-old Robert Smith. Siren Song is great. It's like this pleasant, it's the best modern cure you're going to get, but they failed to develop it. It's like two and a half minutes long. It's a sketch. It's the only other like emotionally resonant piece after Underneath the Stars. Why wouldn't you polish that up more? Why wouldn't you flesh it out into, you know, a full four or five minute anthem? It's such a strange decision. of the record 4-4 mid-tempo tunes no memorable lyrics melodies or choruses I mean that word cloud notion I mentioned earlier it's the same thing it's just like I you me always now it's it's like fighting through writer's block so evidently to try and just get songs done let's just get it in the can he's been open about this during the wish listening party on twitter he tweeted out it was so easy back then writing lyrics stopped being easy as long ago as wish and it's only gotten harder for him to find and develop affecting or even clever lyrics on either of those 2000s records i mean freak show is the fucking worst to me Wow. 
why would you ever want to go back to that warbling crooner shit on Club America? That's, I mean, that is the worst song The Cure had ever recorded. A lot of people think Sleep When I'm Dead on 413 is like the worst Cure song ever. No, it's Club America. There's three or four songs that kind of sound like they got left off Wish, like Switch, It's Over, you know, filling out the running order. It's, it's kind of half-thought demos. And again, his voice is so deafeningly loud. It's almost like they're trying to cover up for the fact that there's no song underneath the vocals. There's no musical foundation here for Smith to kind of dance with, to move in and out of the way he always had in the past. The, the way in which classic Cure songs transition, swell, recede, there, there's so much movement in them. And it's just not here. The best you can say for 413 is that it's a drama-free record. <laughs> They're not having to shoulder the Ross Robinson fiasco, all that headline promotional activity that Smith conceded to doing for Geffen for the self-titled. None of that happens. They invested nothing in 413 Dream, and I sincerely doubt Geffen even wanted to release it. So like in one sense, 413 is just a leave well enough alone scenario. No one was pretending it was a great record. To Die Hard and again, like older Cure fans, pretty much everything since Wish is an academic exercise, not an emotional exercise. We're never going to abandon Robert Smith. We're not going to disavow the Cure. We're always going to be curious to know what he's doing. We'll all kind of smile knowingly when he pulls together a song or a melody that comes close to kind of squaring with our expectations. That's how I regarded Blood Flowers. I still stick up for that record. But the failure of 413 Dream on all levels was so incontrovertible that Smith literally just walked away from songwriting. He spends the next 10 years focused on remastering the catalog, deluxe editions, merchandise, and most importantly, perfecting the live show. Because barring a couple of blips, the one undeniable, unwavering constant in the Cure's history is the overwhelming success of their live show. And so he invites Reeves Gabrels to become a permanent member in 2012, and since then, the live show has been essentially bulletproof. Between their front of house guy, Paul Corky Corkett and Smith, they really started taking it seriously after that kind of dragging 2011 festival show to see how strong and also at the same time how repeatable they could make the Cure concert experience. This is what Smith invested his energy in in the 2010s and it was really smart and it took a decade you know after a series of reissue campaigns Smith now being able to look in the rearview mirror in kind of a different way hugely successful tours and finally the 40th anniversary curation event in 2018. After that Smith finally starts talking about a new Cure album and as expected he's running the same hype train he did on 413. This could be a triple album. We've got so much material. It's the heaviest stuff we've ever written. If you're a Cure fan, you'll love it. Like, boys don't cry, they definitely cry wolf. What kind of fucking tagline is that? Is that the title of the program? Make, Next. In 2022, Smith and The Cure are celebrating the 30th anniversary of Wish. They start playing this new material live, and that's a fully intentional decision, knowing it's going to be on the internet within minutes of the lights going down. I mean, these are initial impressions from live recordings, but what we're hearing in these live shows, it sounds like it comes from the period leading up to Wish. And depending on the day of the week, Robert will tell you, Wish is his favorite Cure album. These new songs invoke a lot of that, that kind of big hand, this Twilight Garden period. And it is no coincidence that Smith put both of those back in the live set in the mid and late 2010s. I did a YouTube live stream during the Tim's Twitter listening party and there's also a Shallow Rewards podcast here on Spotify and Apple Music focusing on Wish. And in that I talk a lot about the other direction that Wish could have gone in. The sound predicted by the high B-sides and the version of Big Hand that we heard at the end of Picture Show. And I think Smith is still hung up on this, on what Wish could have become because in this panicked kind of second guessing reshuffling of Wish, there's a whole other version of that album that's in his head that he had been working on through about 1990. Like he likes Wish as it is and he's proud of it, but he can see this other album that he abandoned and was afraid sounded regressive 
It sounded like Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, but like darker. It's sort of like an album's worth of breathe and chain of flowers. It's so hard to describe how singular those Wish B-sides are. The kind of atmosphere that they make corporeal. It's like the musical equivalent of an overcast, mild evening, like walking alone through the woods, you know, wistfully, but there's this resignation to those songs. It's resolved. This is like a mature longing. It's not desperate. It's not messy. It's not afraid or angry. There's such a stable beauty to that material. They never got close to anything like that again. The three best songs on Bloodflowers, those non-album cuts, Spilt Milk and Yesterday's Gone from around the same time, nothing else has come close to the gravity of anything Robert Smith and The Cure wrote from 1976 to 1993. Unlike 413 Dream, which completely failed to deliver on Smith's promises, what we're hearing so far of what's likely to become Songs of a Lost World, it is significantly different than either of those dashed off insecure 2000s records there are three truly spiraling spectral anthems out there full of those heavy ringing guitar leads we're used to i'm really optimistic and like from what i'm seeing online so are most fans even the older gen x fans like me who like we've largely tuned this band out except as a nostalgia trip like go smoke a bowl and see the cure in concert there's a dog whistle like cure bat signal shining right now that i haven't seen in 20 years people are talking about these songs There's dry powder here, and if there could ever be a return to form for The Cure in its twilight years, it just might be Songs of a Lost World. (laughs) 